Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Fred Jacobs. Fred is one of the leading visionaries in radio for the last three decades, founded jacobsmedia.com and has a wealth of knowledge going back to the past, but also forward to the future and is bringing vision to so many media companies in a time of utter disruption. Fred, welcome to the show. Aidan, thank you. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. I'm quite jealous because I know you're sitting lakeside over in uh, in the states and i'm sitting in a in a room with rain outside here in dublin it is lovely where i'm sitting uh an occasional uh, boat may go by so uh, please excuse the uh, motor noise that, that would be like a dig below the belt for me every single time man. we'll just roll with it fred before we talk about the future because i'd really love to talk about the future of radio in particular and i know you you're a consultant for many media but particularly radio but before we look to the future, it'd be great to understand your past. So, uh, like a lot of people in radio, my, my path into the business was a little uh, circuitous. I actually come to radio from the audience research side. That's really where I cut my teeth in the business. And uh, it has really served me well. My first job out of school was working for a media research company uh, here in the States, in Iowa, uh, of all places. And uh, I learned a lot about uh, people and uh, their reactions to media. From there, I went to uh, ABC Radio, which was one of the leading radio broadcasting companies uh, back in the 70s, 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s. And with ABC, uh, I did audience research for them. I programmed a rock station in Detroit, WRIF, which is my hometown. And uh, then I went off on my own in 83 uh, to start Jacobs Media. Our, our initial claim to fame was the creation of the classic rock format, which uh, we uh, uh, had a great run with and continue to. And we consulted all rock formats uh, for many, many years and, and continue to do so. But then we, when, when the digital explosion uh, initially occurred in the mid-90s, we understood, uh, especially through the research that we were doing, that there were tremendous opportunities and challenges there. And that's what led us to uh, the mobile opportunity. Uh, Apple opened up their app store in July of 08. We opened up Jake Apps, our mobile app development company, about 100 days later, and we're going strong. So we do work in that space. We do a lot of work in public radio. Uh, we have, as a result of the apps, uh, become very involved uh, with connected cars and auto companies. We've actually thrown a conference uh, the past uh, three years called Dash, which is a mashup of automotive and radio. So. We, we have our fingers in a lot of pies, and, and these are crazy times, as you intimated, and uh, disruption is everywhere, and we're helping companies uh, deal with the disruption, connect a few dots, and figure out how to survive and thrive in, in a very frenzied environment. So that, that's the history, and um, it evolves every day, right? Yeah, and you work with some awesome clients, ABC, Comedy Central, BBC News, EA Games, one that I love, which I'd, I'd love to deep dive into. I'm going to resist the temptation, which is Playboy. 
but we won't go into that today. <laughs> we'll do that afterwards. When you think of your history there, and, and it's key to understanding the future, is your depth of knowledge of the ecosystem. Because you, oftentimes you have consultants coming in with one area of expertise, maybe digital, and kind of going, oh, we need to digital transformation. But so much transformation is just evolution. Like innovation is oftentimes bravery plus evolution. And that involves knowledge of a deep knowledge of what's going on because every aspect is touched by disruption down to a lot of the stuff you do, salespeople, how they sell, digital technology, of course, but mainly the human, how the human changes, how human wants to consume content, how the access to content has changed. And you mentioned stuff like the connected car. But I'd love to, to talk first about how you've seen the change in formats driven by technology. Well, uh, clearly, we're, we're at a time now where the funnel has been flipped, right? I mean, we radio used to be on the small end of the funnel, and we would uh, broadcast out the wide end to as they say, an undifferentiated mass audience, but but now the audience has a voice in everything, whether it's uh, via social media or just being able to make their own choices, personalize their content, listen to podcasts, essentially take control of their uh, media entertainment information uh, experience, right? When you think about music discovery, it used to all be here on the radio. We we controlled, uh, we were the gatekeepers, uh, what got played, what didn't get played, and, and how often it was exposed and promoted. But today, music discovery comes in, in so many different uh, forms and, and uh, platforms. And, and so that, that, that's a big part of the change. And so radio people have had to adjust to the new dynamic. I, I think the other difficult uh, burden on many people who have been in radio for a long time. Again, I think back to when I was programming a radio station uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. All I had to really worry about what was, was what was coming out the two speakers. But today, when you think about the kind of content options that a radio programmer has to provide, whether it's a stream or podcasts or social or perhaps blogs, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, it, it's a much heavier burden to do radio in in 2017. So it, it has been a sea change, uh, not just in the way that radio is programmed and content is distributed, but also on the measurement and selling ends. And here in the States, uh, we're, we're really going through, I think, uh, a very difficult time on the measurement end, in particular Nielsen uh, who really is the currency for ratings uh, here, whether it's their diary or meter uh, methodologies. Or, uh, they're struggling to essentially measure everything, all the different uh, output of what a radio station provides. So it's a very crazy, confusing, uh, difficult time for radio as it, it tries to maintain its primacy position and uh, that is especially the case in the car, right, where radio absolutely owned the dashboard for decades and decades and decades. Um, and today uh, there is essentially a hole in the fence, if you will, and just about anybody uh, can get their content coming through the dashboard speakers. So that's been a real adjustment for radio people. You mentioned Nielsen, and it's, it's really important piece because people – 
behave towards what they're measured on. And oftentimes in the past, people were measured on their on-air listenership, which was measured whichever way it was, through meters or through the, the survey methods. But then what happens is a lot with radio personalities is they may overlook the digital aspect. So blogging, for example, or even social media, unless it's self-serving towards their own brand and them as a brand rather than the radio station, it's very hard to engage them to look to digital as well as a, as a way to recruit and retain audience to on air. And that it's ultimately the same people, but the diffusion of touch points is so wide now that you need to cater for the correct ones of those, not all of them, but the correct ones. How do you get people incentivized to see that? Well, it, it, it can be difficult. I mean, I, I think the first thing that a brand manager has to do, and you alluded to this, is to establish what platforms matter to the audience, because you're right, they're not on all of them. I mean, chances are with whatever kind of radio station you're programming, you don't need to be worried about everything from Instagram to Facebook to Snapchat to Twitter. Uh, some will be more important than others to the audience. Uh, same thing with video, podcasts, or blogs. But you do have to know what are the essential touch points that the audience wants to use. And you'd better be there because if you're not, they're going to find content in the space um, outside of yours and, and out of sight, out of mind. So it's important for brands to understand preferred platforms. And then it's a matter of sitting down with talent and producers and if necessary, training them, orienting them to why this is important. I mean, I tend to find that that if you go about it in a logical way, you don't just say to talent, you should be on Twitter, but showing them the percentage of the audience that that uses Twitter and enjoys it and communicates there and and how oftentimes there's a conversation happening, maybe even about your brand that you're not participating in, <laughs> but it's still going on out there. But, you know, there there are certain people who uh, embrace uh, the new opportunities and, and dive in, sometimes to a fault, right? I mean, uh, we, we all have encountered uh, personalities who spend so much time on social media, they forget they're on the air. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but the other side of it, is people who are just focused on being on the radio and and really at the exclusion of of other things and and so i think sometimes it comes down to how are you hiring and what are the things that you're looking for when you're hiring future talent and and what what are what are the new requirements if you will uh, there because so often uh, radio hires with the same basic precepts and requirements that they have for decades and yet finding people who uh, are able to say edit video or who are good writers or who understand the principles of podcasting or frankly um, visually come across well uh, whether it's uh, online or in person even even from a sales standpoint uh, again it's not just having good pipes and a tight board <laughs> yeah. which which were very much the requirements not that many years ago. So I, I, I think it actually starts out with how are you hiring people and what are you, what kind of talents and skills are you looking for? And then you can kind of go from there. Yeah, and I love what you said about the funnel being reversed. And, and it's the same 
like you said, there might be a conversation happening on social media, and social media originally was used the way all ma- like mass media it was a push and it was an output. And if you flip it and make it an input, you can actually recruit content into your station and actually talk about what people are talking about and all of a sudden be very, very relevant again. Yes. Yes. I mean, the the potential to uh, use user-generated content is great. Um, Clearly, uh, the audience can provide uh, a much better feedback tool than the ratings. I mean, ratings have never been good from a programming standpoint, all ratings really ever accomplished was was giving you a measurement after the fact. And even at that, um, a very crude basic measurement of uh, demographics, but not motivations. So tapping into what the audience is thinking uh, can be uh, extremely helpful. And then, you know, even taking it a step further by putting together brand ambassador programs where um, you know, through through the digital toolkit, you can actually connect with people who can evangelize your brand for you. Uh, we we have a number of clients uh, who uh, are involved in a variety of different experiments in that space, and it's arduous. It takes some work, but uh, given the fact that everybody in the audience has their own community and their their own audience, essentially uh, harnessing that power can really be very productive and rewarding for radio. So it's a whole different world, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you mentioned on-air talent and uh, the, the transformation required there or the, the different thinking because it means hiring different people because the people who got to you to where you are today are not necessarily the people who will get you where you need to be today or tomorrow. And it's the same for sales because in the States in particular, there's a lot of programmatic sales or, or getting there where people can buy on a per thousand basis now in on digital formats, essentially, because there's there's such scale with digital listenership now. How is that? How has that totally disrupted the landscape in the States? Uh, on the sales side? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's pretty gnarly uh, to use a, a technical term. Um you know, and, and part of that is that radio sales for ever and ever was pretty transactional in that if you had the ratings, the sales followed. And and it really was a very simple and profitable relationship. And and today that that relationship ha- has broken down to a great degree. I mean, highly rated stations, very popular stations, stations that are top three in their markets are, are, are doing fine, but, but for the rest of the field, it, it really can be pretty tricky. And, you know, you, you, you hear the analog dollars, digital dimes analogy made quite a bit. I mean, even, uh, stations that are doing well in the digital space in terms of streams or podcasts or those kinds of things have had a very difficult time monetizing uh, those, those efforts. And again, part of that does go back to, uh, to measurement because there is not a, uh, all encompassing, uh, measurement tool or service that aggregates, <clears throat> say terrestrial listening with digital puts it all together and, and in a form that the advertising industry can embrace and, and understand. And so, it, it, it is a very awkward time because on the one hand, stations know that they have to be 
active in the digital arena or get left behind. Um, but that requires resources, both human and financial, and the return uh, on that investment certainly now uh, is not good. And and that's why you're seeing a lot of stations, um, certainly in the States, and I, I would assume around the world, looking for what we lovingly call NTR or non-traditional revenue. And uh, oftentimes that's taking the form of concerts and events, um, not just sponsorship anymore, but ownership and, and stations leveraging their audiences uh, and uh, driving them to ticket sales and showing up at events. So I, I think the theme here now is that you you can't live on just spot revenue alone, uh, but digital is slow to come. So how else can you leverage your brand in order to uh, find a way to generate revenue that wasn't there before? So that's why you're seeing a lot of effort uh, in podcasting, uh, event marketing, uh, and those kinds of things. And the problem is, is that there typically is not a great deal of expertise at the local station level or even the corporate level uh, in the states. So that's requiring broadcasting companies, media companies to actually have to go out and and hire to that need. And again, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so yeah, it's it it's a conundrum um, to 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 say the least. And it's one of the reasons why we we have so much consolidation here in the states. I mean, politics aside, uh, broadcasters will tell you that in order to survive, they they need greater scale, and the way to achieve that greater scale is through uh, owning more properties. But of course, that has implications in other areas, right? Like content and distribution and all that. So it's it's a very heady time. Um, yeah. We had Scott Galloway on the show um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling us about what's required in newspaper world is this alliances where they block out Google because once they opened up their pipes to Google and the crawlers could access the content, it put quality content beside a sewer of cat pics. And this has been an argument given to me that if I digitize my digital outputs, my, and I know it's quite small digital listenership, in most places it's below 10%, but if I do that, and it actually puts you into a pool of content rather than having a closed or a walled garden around your own content and it being an analog content. How, how do you see that panel? Because it's, it's like a reluctance to go and even trial it, even to test it out and go, what would happen? I don't have to do it with all my inventory, but I could actually put a little bit out there and put a test balloon up. Well, I mean, you, 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 you raise a significant point. I mean, radio people have traditionally been control freaks, <laughs> right? They've, they, they have been the gatekeepers. They, they've been able to do whatever they wanted to do um, content-wise and even behaviorally. I mean, I, I remember being at a radio station and really the only way that people could even get in touch with us was to, to write us a letter and uh, put it in the mail um, or perhaps pick up the phone and hope that somebody would respond. But, but today, obviously, people have uh, a lot of different ways to be able to make their feelings known, either directly to the radio station or in spaces, frankly, where there are more people. So that, that sense of loss of control that you speak to, I think, is really palpable. 
and and a lot of broadcasters uh, are uncomfortable letting go and and just putting their stuff out there. Uh, and yet I think there is the knowledge that if you don't do that, if if you don't go along with the fact that you're not going to be able to control your environment, that things will be shared, that people will make all kinds of comments about what you've done. Uh, and they're not always pleasant and and pretty. But again, I, I think the downside is that people are engaged in the spaces and with the platforms that they enjoy using and that are convenient and accessible to them. And you just have to be there. I, I think, um, you know, Pandora, the 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 pure play uh, music streaming brand um, that is not everywhere in the world, but but in a lot of parts of the world really did a, a, a brilliant job eight, 10 years ago of essentially seeking ubiquity. Uh, they, they realized they would never get to necessarily the 90% level that, that radio stations enjoy. But the idea was we're going to be in every possible platform. And that means uh, being in, in dashboards of cars and being on computers and being in phones and there was even a refrigerator manufactured here in the States that had Pandora embedded in it. <laughs> so right. you right. You, 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 you could listen to your steely Dan while you were preparing dinner. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that, that's been a bit of an adjustment to broadcasters who have been just used to the tower and transmitter, um, mindset where that has always been good enough and and it's no longer sufficient because people are moving. And in fact, I mean, there there is a growing number of people. I mean, we talk about the car because it, it obviously is is a pivotal listening environment, right? The, the lion's share of radio listening, certainly here in the States, occurs while people are in their cars. So it has become a very important touch point in radio conversations, certainly here. And, and I know in, in Europe as well, because I've been on a couple of radio days panels that have been devoted to the car. But I think while that's been going on, radios are systematically disappearing from homes. Uh, it's, it's difficult to buy a radio. And when you're talking about millennials and their younger brothers and sisters, Generation Z, um, uh, chances are, uh, many of them are living in environments where there are no radios and they may not even know exactly what a radio is. Yeah. So, <laughs> so creating content and distributing it, um, where, where, where people are and, and on devices and platforms that they're using isn't just, um, a nice idea. I, I think it really is mandatory at, at this point if you're a brand that is serious about surviving. And again, it, it, it's a difficult pill for many broadcasters to swallow because the return on investment is not necessarily apparent this quarter or even maybe this year. But, but ultimately, uh, if, if radio is to survive, I think this most intense challenge, it, it just has to hunker down and commit to being uh, everywhere that people are. You talked about people getting out of themselves, so actually changing their own mindset. And that means in a lot of cases getting out of the silos because what, certainly what I have seen in, in radio and media companies is all of a sudden a digital department exists and it's seen as the enemy rather than yes. a colleague yes. 
or rather than as a partner, rather than an integrator. And if revenues are split between, as you said, non-traditional revenue and traditional revenue, that's instead of actually working together, the traditional team will see the NTR team as as cannibalizing their piece of the buy, and all yes. of a sudden they stop start working against each other. And it's the same even with on air that if you bring in somebody who might be digital editor, all of a sudden that person is ostracized or kept in a silo and kept there and almost almost choked of oxygen to grow. And we see so many people in those roles just leave and maybe go to pre-IPO startups or the big the big four and uh, just disappear out of radio altogether. And that's one of the big shames because you said that about it's hard to find the, the people who have the experience, but the people that have the experience usually leave because of these political reasons. Yeah, it, it can be corrosive. And I, I, I think the, the battle, if you will, or certainly the friction is probably a better way to put it. Um, yeah, it, it exists in a lot of organizations where it, it is very, very difficult for these two entities with, by the way, the sales department floating in and out, <laughs> it, it, it really does become um, a, a, a bit of a game uh, to be able to manage everybody uh, and to try to get them on the same page, rowing in the same uh, direction. Uh, one thing that, that we did just last month that really was fascinating, because as you know from reading our blog, uh, the drumbeat is always very present for you know, turning the corner and making the adjustment and understanding the digital challenge and, and opportunity, especially in the radio space. So we've been going to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas every January for the past eight years. Really, since we started the mobile app development company, we decided at that point, hey, we're software guys. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. We're techie guys now. We should go to this. And <laughs> and and so we started attending and we we just couldn't believe how much we learned and uh, just how exciting it was to see uh, all this innovation in in one place and people from all over the world just so optimistic about uh, where where everything was going on. And the other thing we noticed is that radio had virtually zero presence uh, at CES. So we've continued to go back every year. We talk about it all the time. But this year, we actually organized a tour through CTA, the Consumer Technology Association that puts on CES, and we brought 11 uh, corporate executives from uh, a variety of radio companies with us on a tour of the floor of CES, and none of them had ever been before, so it was like taking uh, a bunch of kids to their first fireworks show. (laughs) It, It was just like awesome, literally awesome, but it was unbelievable. And to a person, they all came away um, really moved by the experience of meeting people in the media and technology space and and getting a grasp of what they're working on and how quickly they're they're doing this and how technology is moving and how radio is is really not particularly present. You know, they're they're not against radio at all. And in fact, many of them grew up listening to the radio and continue to do so today, but they're moving. They're, they're on a fast track. There's just a tremendous amount of competition. Um, there, there's an offshoot to CES called Eureka Park that uh, takes place in the Sands Convention Center down the strip 
from the Las Vegas Convention Center. And Eureka Park is essentially small startups, bootstrap entrepreneurs, and it's very international. There are 600 startups and they have different sectors within Eureka Park from France and from Israel and South Korea and the Czech Republic. And it, it literally is like walking through a techie United Nations. It's crazy, but just so exhilarating and so much fun. So uh, that that's another way that we're thinking about trying to help broadcasters understand the change that is all around us. And, and one of those ways is literally taking them to see the change firsthand. I mean, it's one thing to talk about things. It's another thing to read white papers and look at slide decks. But when you're actually there on the floor at CES talking to people who are innovating um, with new technology and, and new concepts, it, it's very persuasive. It's very impressive. So that, that's something new that we've started. And the feedback that we got from this year's tour is you must do this again. And so we're already beginning to uh, lay out the plans for doing more than one tour at CES 2018, literally 11 months from now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's cool. Fred, you touched on something there, which was really interesting, but you mentioned millennials and Gen Z not having radios. And we also talked about having almost a separate department who lives outside the rules of the company as it is, almost like a Netflix within a blockbuster, but that's protected by CEO level or, you know, they don't, they don't get infected by the old way of doing things. They have to be kept on that different path, if you will. And in that world, right, if, if we're seeing children now, so under 10s, for example, who don't even watch TV, who are using YouTube and almost being trained through YouTube kids and these type of devices or Netflix even, they are not getting any exposure to radio. And then in the car, it's on demand, you know, depending on the, the year of their, their parents' car, there may be no devices in the car or else it's their own device. They may have a Kindle or they may have an iPad. So they're getting zero exposure. And I mentioned Netflix and Blockbuster for a reason because Blockbuster thought everything was rosy. And then all of a sudden it seemed like overnight they just crashed and they burned and they were out of there. Meanwhile, Netflix just took off and we've seen how great a success that has been. You can see that coming for radio because when the audiences get older and in tandem you have the car becoming more and more an on-demand entertainment facility and then if that car is automated and it's driverless, there's a kind of a perfect storm coming together that like this is the big question is where is radio in that world? Yeah, well, you you describe the dilemma exceptionally well, and uh, it, it, it's exactly right. I mean, you you can look at the here and now, and you can say about radio that we're okay. I mean, maybe we have a slow leak, <laughs> yeah. but 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 you know, a slow leak is not all that apparent until one day you come outside and it's like, whoa, we've got a flat tire here. In fact, all four of them. Uh, are are flat and and I think to some extent that's what's happening now. Um, radio looks at its ratings and uh, sees uh, robust audiences uh, certainly over the age of thirty five or forty, and we're still generating shares among millennials and 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 teens. So from the outside, it doesn't look like anything's wrong, but but the reality is exactly the way 
you described it. I, I think of all the radio entities here in the States that are most cognizant of the challenge and the concern, it's public radio, uh, ironically enough. Uh, NPR and, and uh, local public radio stations are uh, especially engaged in trying to really crack the millennial code, if you will. We are involved now in a fascinating research study that is um, uh, spearheaded by PRPD, the Public Radio Program Directors Association, and they've pulled together 15 uh, uh, local public radio groups from around the states, our stakeholders, and they have all anteed up uh, funds to uh, put, put, or put together a millennial research project, as it is uh, creatively being called. And uh, our company is, is doing the research there. And it's not a quantitative study. We're not generating numbers. We are really using qualitative means to better understand the millennial mindset so we can help inform public radio broadcasters about how the content and distribution shift is taking place and where where they should be putting their efforts, maybe dual efforts, right? Because you you really have a schism in the audience. You've got your traditionalists who are still listening to morning edition on NPR on a clock radio on the nightstand. And then as you just, as you describe, uh, you've got kids who, who might enjoy the content, but you've got to get it to them in a place where they live. And, and so, you know, briefly, there are two phases to this, uh, research. One was a series of one-on-one -on -one interviews with millennials from around the country where we literally just sit down with them one at a time, instead of a focus group with all the uh, crazy dynamics that can occur. These are just one-to-one -one conversations with them about uh, the media they use and prefer and the devices that, that they own and enjoy and aspire to uh, own. And then the phase that we're in now, which is the crazy phase, is the ethnographic uh, interviews. So we're doing a dozen of these where we're literally spending the better part of an entire day with just one person following them around with a video camera <laughs> as as they go through life and and they wake up in the morning we're right there with them where when they wake up and get out of bed and and start their day and go to work or work out of the house and and then whatever they're doing uh, socially or family wise the rest of the day and it it literally is an observation process uh, and then we go back and interview them to find out hey we noticed that. Uh, when you were on the subway, uh, you know, you were listening to podcasts, tell us what that was about. So we are talking to them at the end of the experience to sort of backfill on some of the things that we observe, but we're hoping that it provides some windows of opportunity for public radio to better understand um, how young people are so much different than the rest of us. And, and how we need to make adjustments in really everything that we do if we are to survive and, and radio in one way, shape, or form, um, you know, gets to the other side here and is still a viable medium. I look forward to seeing that piece of research. And I read, I read a recent one, Fred, where radio scores so high on a, on a human level. So it's about that company. It's about having that company when you might not be yep. – in a zone where you have somebody around and it's just almost like connection. I suppose it's like somebody will check their phone to see, has anybody linked into me on the outside world? I know there's a world there and radio is this kind of voice in the background. And I know you've talked about that in the past, but this is the piece that 
I can see the value in an NPR and a KCRW and these kind of stations because those guys have been forerunners in stuff like media players. I remember the KCRW media player was one of the best very, very early. They were yes. into live live events, Morning Becomes Eclectic, all these kind of shows. They catered for a, a diverse audience. But one of the key things I always thought, and, and you, you've cracked this in the States, is they are community-based. They're almost crowd-funded, and because of that, they, they can really survive. Do you see a piece in the future where the audience have to fund the radio stations? It, it, it's an interesting model, and, and certainly the experiences that I've had uh, at Radio Days, um, meeting broadcasters from around the world where the funding model is uh, entirely different. Um, you, 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 you clearly see that there might be some other ways to do this. And, and when you look at the public radio uh, membership model here, I mean, you know, they're largely using these heinous pledge drives that, that, that you know, do a great job of raising money. But, but unfortunately, from uh, a listening standpoint, uh, they're very off-putting. They're very difficult to listen to. Some people call them begathons. Uh, but, but clearly different monetization models are things that, that I think, um, are, are clearly going to have to be considered, uh, at some point. I mean, again, you look at the way the BBC is funded. Um, it's, it's, it, 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 it's a whole different model here. So I, again, I, I, I think we have to be open to, uh, to, to different models and different possibilities and, 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 and whatnot, um, I, I think here in the States, um, you know, where capitalism is uh, obviously the currency, uh, if, if, if you talk to uh, most broadcast radio CEOs, they, they would tell you that uh, uh, they're, they're comfortable uh, with that model. But again, I, the next thing out of their mouths is going to be, but we need more deregulation so we can <laughs> create <laughs> create bigger scale right exactly yeah. so you know it, it's it's kind of one thing and 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 then the other so yeah it's 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 tough but you, again it it's not ju- it's not just us i mean at our dash conference a couple of years ago we had a panel of car dealers car car dealer presidents talking about how their worlds have been rocked by the connected car and having to hire trainers and and uh, and train their own salespeople so that they are conversant with the technology so they can train uh, new car and truck uh, buyers and also how their sales world is is being changed by search and uh, digital and and everything else. But but one of the dealer owners turned to all the radio people in the audience and said, "Look, our." Our world is being disrupted just like yours. It, it's no different here. We are all going through the same growing pains and the same uh, learning strains and, and everything else. And I think sometimes radio people think that uh, it's just happening to them. But yeah. <laughs> the reality is, you know, as you talked about with Blockbuster and Netflix, it, it's happening in so many different levels and in so many different businesses. Look at look at taxi cabs and Uber, right? I mean, talk about a disrupted business model and a, frankly, a model that should have been disrupted a long time ago. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 all here right now. Yeah, I can I can Over hear it, one of those boats going past, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice one. It's not a Trump-sized boat, mind you, but it's a very nice. One. 
it's it's a good uh, it's a good signal <laughs> for me that this uh, interview is coming to a close because I know you're under time pressure. Fred, last question: If you were to put out a tweet of your three nuggets, Fred's nuggets of radio to survive, what what would you say? Wow, that's a really it's a really good question in 140 characters or less, <laughs> or, right? Or, or, <laughs> or even just three themes. Darn, darn that Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think understanding that while content is king, distribution is queen, and and that it is critically important to um, not just create content for all these different platforms, but make sure that the user experience on these distribution outlets is um, uh, as as solid as it can be. Uh, the other thing that we touched on that I think is critically important is is not just training, but but this this whole conundrum surrounding youth, whether it is making sure that our products are still uh, youth friendly, but also and you touched on this. And I think it's a, a great point, Aiden, that our businesses are structured so that we are appealing um, to young people that they want to work here. They want to make a contribution and, and, and they want to be a part uh, of what we do. And then finally, I, I think just having an open mind to learning, uh, attending conferences that are not just straight ahead radio conferences, but going to something like CES or Dash or Podcast Movement, which is a conference that we're now heavily involved with uh, here in the States. Uh, its fourth conference will be uh, this summer in Anaheim. We're actually programming a radio-ish uh, track, and we're very excited about that. So being open-minded to different ways of thinking, I, I think, are really essential. So that's way more than 140 characters. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic advice, Fred. And, and for more advice, like I highly Highly recommend your blog. I've been following since you started, jacobsmedia.com. Fred Jacobs, founder of Jacobs Media, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. It was a real honor and a pleasure. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Rory O'Farrell, founder of Melocity. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aiden. You have a really interesting product. Let's jump straight into it and tell us what it is and how it works. Yeah, essentially, it's an online collaboration platform. So it allows musicians to collaborate together on the same track from anywhere in the world. And essentially, the, yeah, the problem we're looking to solve is all the time wasting that takes place. So when musicians collaborate nowadays, you know, they do a lot of collaboration remotely instead of going into the studio. And with that comes a lot of time wasting because you end up with a lot of musicians you know, in, different, in their homes um, working together and sending files over and back. So Velocity is, is designed to cut out all that time wasting of chasing people to send you know, different versions back. And then also cut out the, you know, the, the confusion with all the, the different versions, you know, being sent to different different musicians. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, I was trying to think of a way to describe this um, for people who aren't in this space. And it's like a collaborative, um, it's, it's more than a Dropbox because you're actually, you can play together in real time, right? Yeah, it's um, essentially, I think that's how a lot of musicians actually have referred to it. They, a lot of them have said, so it's like a Dropbox for musicians. Yeah. Um, and essentially, yeah, instead of sending a file to, to all different band members, um, I can record my part directly into Melocity or, or upload it and then invite you know people by, by email uh, into the project. And then everything I do on my end, um, they see on their side. So it means that if I make a change to, to uh, let's say, the guitar that I record, in. If I make a, a change to that, the, it, it changes on everyone's end. So, 
you know, it eliminates me having to kind of download it and then send it and, and kind of, you know, wait to hear back. So, yeah, we can record directly in. You can upload directly in. Uh, and then even you can even add comments within the project where, you know, somebody can say, you know, add add drums here and all the collaborators within the project will get a notification. The gorillas, for example, like, I mean, the way they work is collaboratively like this, isn't it? Somebody will send a bass line to somebody else or a vocal to somebody else within the gorillas and they'll just add to it, add to it, add to it, and then they'll mix it down at the end. Isn't that how that, that kind of yeah. band works? Yeah, and we've we've got lots of, um, you know, we've got, I think we, we launched seven weeks back. Um, I think it was the 9th of September. Uh, and we've had you know, musicians, let's say, in that kind of seven weeks, we'd have, we've had musicians collaborating uh, across 50, I think 56 countries. Um, so it's been, it's been a hectic few weeks. So let's talk about then the backstory. You know, I used to live in the States and used to bring traditional Irish bands over to trad festivals. And uh, I suppose I moved away from it. I opened a sales and marketing company uh, when I was 24 and ran that for eight years. But I think towards the latter years of running that company, I, I really had the itch. I, I kind of had reached, you know, I'd reached heights that I was happy with within that industry. And I, I just really wanted to kind of end up in music and uh, and saw a problem and, and uh, you know, started researching it for, I suppose, a good year year and a half I was kind of dabbling researching it and you know had it I think like a lot of people thinking about an idea I had you know cold feet um it, you know I didn't I was looking for reasons not to jump into it if you know what I mean yeah and uh and then just made the jump I, I decided I, I kind of had to do it and uh you know jumped into it kind of I think it was January of 2015. So you've done pretty well to have the platform live? Yeah yeah we we, we had investment uh, at the end of 2014 uh, we had an angel investment and investment from Enterprise Ireland, and um, and that allowed me that investment. I suppose it's nearly two years ago now, but that was really to explore the concept. You know, we had a lot of uh, I had a lot of assumptions on a PowerPoint presentation at that point, um, and I had a very good uh, you know angel investor that that was liked the idea and um, wanted us to explore it a bit further and and try and prove some of those assumptions. So we we kind of spent the first year um, up until literally November of last year. We spent that whole time kind of. I suppose, um, trying to see was there a fit for the product. Um, and then for the last 12 months, we've, we took all the research that we, got, that we gathered over that first year um, and, kind, you know, I suppose developed it into an actual product. And, uh, yeah, for me, that was definitely much harder than what, what I thought. I think sometimes when you, when you use a, a really simple product, you, you take it for granted. And when we took all our research a year ago and kind of said, this is what we've learned and this is what the, what the you know, the, the, the product is going to solve, um, it took quite a quite a bit of time to try and decide how that should look and the colours and the layout and you know um, and yeah we, seven weeks ago we we released that and uh, it's been yeah flying in that period yeah so uh, so l l let's walk through the steps so so you, you're you're an entrepreneur you're over in the US you bring bands over you discover the problem how did you discover the problem. Like, was it bands telling you about it, or how did you see this problem? I was actually, I, was, I studied out there. So I was, uh, while I was bringing bands over, I was a student. So I was studying marketing in college out there. So I was out there for five years um, doing a degree. And, uh, and just for the love of music and, and love of trad music, um, I just was doing that for the love of it. I was doing that kind of for no money, just, uh, just to try and kind of build, like, I suppose, a, a, a CV in music. Um, and it wasn't at that point. Uh, I suppose I came back to Ireland and did work in sales, opened up a sales business, you know, a few years later. And it more so came, um, I suppose, as I, as I ran that sales business, I, I obviously met all people from different walks of life. 
And uh, anytime I'd meet a musician, I would be intrigued and I would quiz them and, and ask questions. And, um, and then it, 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 actually a good friend of mine ended up, um, who was very good within music, ended up getting a scholarship to, to, uh, to go to the U.S., and he was out there three years. And when he came back, um, he was talking about how he had worked with a lot of high profile, um, you know, professional musicians. And he was talking about how they had the problem um, in regards, you know, sending files and, and the, the time wasting and how long it took to get a, a project together. And so it was mainly, I suppose, through him um, that I kind of he I did my initial research and uh, and then started seeing uh, there was a bigger problem than what he had made out. And it seemed to be widespread you know, from amateur musicians right up through to professionals. So I, I suppose, I think with, without really knowing what I was doing, I kind of jumped into it. And, uh, and then I suppose over time identified, you know, who the actual target market was, uh, rather than if you were to wind, wind me back maybe 12 or 18 months ago, I would have said, it's, this is going to be amazing. It's going to suit every musician. But really, it's, it's musicians that collaborate through file sharing sites. Yeah, and but you've really done what's credible about it is, and what's really clever, I suppose, and often overlooked is you've gone and identified the problem. It's not you just kind of going, "Oh, this thing really bugs me." There's definitely a market here. You've gone and actually asked the end user from the very, very start, and you've built that up really, really carefully, and 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 that adds huge credibility to the product, but also success to the product because you've really identified the problem in the first place. How, how did you build uh, essentially a straw man? You were saying you were testing this hypothesis with the early investment. How did you build that up? Um, do you know, if I'm honest, you know, I don't think there's such thing as luck, but, uh, but the, there was, uh, I suppose you, you do make your own luck, but there was a, a bit of made luck, I suppose, um, with the, the original investment. And uh, the, the investor that, that came in on board was, was a guy called Fred Carlson. So he's the guy oh, that yeah, had yeah. the deal. Yeah. yeah. So he um, is a he's a product person. Like he is, if you asked him what what was his role in in uh, Dundee, he'll tell you that he was the product manager, you know, and slash CEO. And so I suppose working alongside Fred for the last two years, uh, he's really kind of mentored me, you know. And I, I I've ended up with a, a person I suppose who became mentor, advisor, investor, and. So he, he has a big philosophy on making sure the product is simple. And obviously, if you've seen Dundeal, you know how, how you know, simplified he's, he's made that platform. So bring him coming on board, um, he actually slowed the whole thing down. Um, I suppose I, one of my weaknesses can be that I lose the run of myself sometimes, say, because I get very excited by uh, how big this can be and where we're going with it. And, and Fred, I suppose, was my uh, sounding board um, to kind of get me to you know, slow down um, he used to, anytime I'd lose the run of myself a little bit, he'd, he'd buy me, uh, on a few occasions, he bought me uh, some books and he would say, read those books and don't, don't, don't call me till we, uh, till you have them read. And there were always books about, I suppose, finding that minimal product and, and not building features, you know, making sure that you're really, you know, building the most minimal product possible and working alongside your end users throughout the whole process. So I suppose it was on his mentorship that, uh, we we had musicians in, an, in you know coming into the office every week um, without fail doing face to face interviews um, and I suppose looking at the product telling us what was confusing about it and I suppose we we kind of um, without doing a big pivot you know um, throughout the kind of kind of whole process process we had little pivots always happening brilliant but so, that was a yeah that was Fred's mentorship definitely you know and his influence I can understand how difficult that can be to delay things essentially and you're kind of feeling oh will I ever get there but I do agree. Like when you're in a corporate company, for example, you're under pressure to deliver a product, and 
having the luxury to say no and delayed usually comes the pressure usually comes from somebody like an investor yeah going where's my product but in this case fred has been a real angel in a way who's kind of gone listen take time was it stuff like the the lean startup steve blank those kind of books or can you tell us yeah yeah it was that and it was the um elements of scrum and they were they would have been two two of the big ones yeah there was the uh, the hot seat which was a book about uh, being a, a startup ceo and uh, yeah, you're right. Definitely, I would have expected an investor to come in and uh, and tell you to speed it up and why aren't the numbers good enough? And at certain points, I sat down with Fred and he would say, you know, where I'd be sitting down thinking that the numbers were bad, and he'd be sitting down happy with the numbers, thinking we were ahead of ahead of where we should be. So because they're the right yeah, numbers. Yeah, because they yeah. were right and not, yeah. not, I suppose, not projections that I had in my own head. And yeah, he's probably happy because he's the, they're the right people who are using it and they're repeat users and they're, they're deep users rather than flippant users are just coming in and then you're, you're reporting numbers that are vanity metrics, essentially. So let's, yeah. let's move on. Let's, so, so that's really given a great stability and foundation to the product. So now you're at a stage, you've, you've launched a product, you've tested it, you've brought it back and the users tested it. How do you get your name out there then market it? How do you market yourself? Because this is the difficult part now. Yeah, um, I think the, I suppose the initial concept um, that we looked at was that if the product can't stand on its own without marketing, um, then it's not a good enough product. And but myself, I suppose, coming from a marketing background uh, and then Fred obviously having, I suppose, really taken his time in the early days with Dundeal, um, we both were of the same view that the product has to stand on its own. So I think up until this point, that's all we've done. Um, we it does have a the product does have a, a I suppose a very high level of virality, and I know a lot of a lot of companies will will, will talk about virality and that the product can grow on its own, um, and it's not always the case. But I do think that Velocity has a very very strong case to grow on its own because we're we're I suppose utilizing musicians, and musicians love to collaborate together. You know they they play together. You know they play in bands together and. Even like solo artists have, have a band behind them. And so I suppose with, with the platform up to this far, every time a musician wants to start a project, if they invite two or three musicians to join it, and we've quadrupled and, and you know doubled and quadrupled in size. So it ha- does have a very natural virality to it that if a musician wants to work on a project and they invite their friends, we grow. Um, we have a strategy that we want to roll out early in 2017 that um, I suppose allows us to utilize social networks a lot more. Um, so we want to target specific musicians uh, with specific skills um, through the likes of Facebook. Um, obviously, a lot of musicians utilize and, and engage with their fans on Twitter. So we want to um, get involved with a bit of Twitter advertising. And I suppose the last big one that we want to do is YouTube. Um, because a lot of musicians nowadays, they learn to play an instrument by watching YouTube videos. And you can pretty much go from being a, an amateur, entry-level amateur musician right up through to, be, to becoming you know, a very good uh, musician over a few years without even doing, I suppose, a face-to-face lesson. So I think YouTube uh, will be one of the ones that we really want to kind of position ourselves in front of those kind of people entering the, the, the industry for the first time. You're really building a community here, isn't it? It's a community site rather than a commodity site. Yeah, our, our goal, our kind of long-term goal is to become like a LinkedIn for musicians. Let's say if they're a drummer, they can put down their drums down on, onto Velocity and then um, they, they can have a search bar and find, like let's say, a saxophone player and invite the person to add to the to the project we want to do it in phases so phase one right now is is velocity is a collaborative tool where you can work together with people you already know so instead of i suppose dropboxing files over and back the whole time 
you can start a project on velocity and, and I suppose have be more connected and in the loop with, with your collaborators. Say, right, I've created a riff. I'm kind of a bit anxious that somebody's going to sample my riff. Yeah, so version one, which is obviously what we just put out, uh, you can only collaborate with people you already know. So you're only collaborating with people whose email you input into the to, uh, to Velocity. Okay. So we with version one, we've kind of said, just deal with it as you would with your friends, you know, which generally is no contract. You know, just you're just collaborating and you trust each other. Obviously, you want the social community collaboration, but then you also want the labels using this to find talent. So it's crowdsourcing to find talent as well. Would that be part of the plan eventually? Yeah, yeah, we've actually met with uh, Sony, and they're the the um, major, most major label, I suppose, we've met with, um, who, uh, in fact, have kind of really talked to us about that concept, that we could be, um, essentially, we could become a, a publisher, um, uh, you know, pushing, the, you know, the right artists towards the labels um, to sign. So again, saving them time, having to kind of go through and find, you know, artists that they'd be interested in signing. Uh, last question for you then. So the name Melocity, where, where did you get that from? Good question. We we had a different name, um, and we we got into some difficulty with a major brand. And so when it came down to it, I had to kind of go and start all over again and come up with a new name. Melos actually means melody in Italian, and then uh, obviously doing what a lot of the brands do now and make it into its own words. So when you go to the site, it's mainly acoustic instruments. Is there like dance music, electronic music element to it as well? Electronic music guys are a lot more comfortable with their with their recording studios. Yes. And a lot of them, I suppose they don't have the same need for this type of product. We do solve a need, but to, to kind of reach that market, we have to. the product has to embed a lot more into maybe a plug-in into the existing studios ah, to satisfy gotcha. the, those yeah. type of people. So we want to target them eventually, but it will, will be more as a plug-in that we gotcha. plug into their existing setup. Nice one, man. Rory O'Farrell, CEO and founder of Velocity. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Cheers, man.